We are on page 444, and as we said, this is chapter 46, The Woman Yogi Who Never Eats. And um, just in the first page of this chapter that we've gone through, Yoganandaji is just introducing uh, Giribala to his companions. They're all in a car, they're all about to go, you know, find her. And as we were marveling, it just, they had no means to know. Is she going to be there? Is she not going to be there? Where does she live exactly? And you know, not in an age where you can call up ahead and say, "Hey, are you home? Should I come over?" And they're making a, a you know many hour long journey. And they're going to go through the most you know interior parts of Bengal. They're just saying, "Chalo, let's go see." And uh, you know, he talks about that. Oh, he heard about Giribala from a tutor of his twenty five years. years ago. And he was her neighbor, and he had, you know, marveled at the fact that she never ate. And this man went as far as to involve the Maharaja of, you know, whatever that area was at that time. And so the Maharaja conducted his experiments on her, as in he invited her over to his house, kept her locked in a room for a month, and then for 20 days, and then for 15 days. And she was very open to it, and thus proved that she, in fact, doesn't eat at all and I imagine doesn't drink as well will confirm that I've uh, lost awareness of that fine point if so so now they've arrived at a place called Purulia where her brother is so they know where her brother lives and that's as far as the information they have received on her so they've arrived and uh, they enter into this gentleman's home says, yes, my sister is living, which is the first thing. Is she still alive? Because, you know, Yogananda as a young boy, 25 years ago, had heard of her. And so he didn't even know if she still lives. Yes, my sister is living. And sometimes she stays here with me. But at present, she is at our family home in Biur. I hardly think, Swamiji, that any automobile has ever penetrated into the interior as far as Biur. It might be best if you all resign yourself to the ancient jolt of the bullock cart. As one voice, our party pledged loyalty to the pride of Detroit, which is they had a Ford uh, automobile. And says, this Ford comes from America, I told the lawyer. Her brother was a lawyer. It would be a shame to deprive it of an opportunity to get acquainted with the heart of Bengal. Then may Ganesh go with you. This was <laughs> the brother's benediction. If you ever get there, I am sure Giribala will be glad to see you. She is approaching her 70s, but continues in excellent health. Please tell me, sir, if it is absolutely true that she eats nothing. I looked directly into his eyes, those telltale windows of the mind. Yogananda is always, you can see, you know, he likes to, <laughs> he really likes to ask everybody everything. He's like, going to test and make sure. It's not just the person that he's going to see, but even when he was going to meet Therese Noeman, he asked, you know, the man whose house she was a guest in. And, you know, he asked the uh, bystanders and outside people he found at their home, just everywhere he goes, just confirming. It is true. His gaze was open and honorable. In more than five decades, I have never seen her eat a morsel. If the world suddenly came to an end, I could not be more astonished than by the sight of my sisters taking food. So he's more readily like, yeah, the world can end, but I doubt that my sister would ever. That would astonish me a lot more than the entire world crumbling down. So we're going to now skip a couple of pages ahead because this is just, you know, their journey and uh, everything that happens with the car. Nothing in particular for us, mm. except, I mean, it's really fun. So you please go ahead and read it. But we thought we'd come to when they actually arrive at Giribala's house. So this is uh, 449 from the top. Halting by a narrow lane, we found ourselves within 100 feet of Giribala's ancestral home. We felt the thrill of fulfillment after the long road struggle crowned by a rough finish. So you can see the car did <laughs> just barely make it, you know, those roads. I mean, again, we're talking about the 1930s. 
even now there are roads in India where <laughs> you know you don't want to be driving over for too long. Imagine back then. Or getting stuck there with yeah. you know. Yeah, if you had to you push. You have to push. Yeah. So all that happened. So that's all the fun part that we skipped. But now they're here. We approached a large two-storied building of brick and plaster, dominating the surrounding abode of huts. The house was under the process of repair. For around it was the characteristically tropical framework of bamboos. I was thinking that even today, yeah. <laughs> we still, that's the way that in India, when you know that a house is under repair, you see all those bamboos. And it's like, wow, this is an ancient technique still being continued. <laughs> We've not yet moved and figured out a better way <laughs> to do it than getting bamboos and tying them all together. So it still works. With feverish anticipation and suppressed rejoicing, we stood before the open doors of the blessed, of the one blessed by the Lord's hungerless touch. Constantly agape were the villagers, young and old, bare and dressed. Women aloof somewhat, but inquisitive too. Men and boys unabashedly at our heels as they gazed on this unprecedented spectacle. Again, it's a beautiful image. You can see maybe they've never seen a car before in their life. They've definitely not seen white. Oh, maybe they have. I mean, the British were in India, so they probably saw a lot of white faces. But it's just a, a new scene for them. Who, who are these strangers who have arrived? If you've ever been to a village in India, yeah. anything, because a village is such a small community and everyone knows everything and everyone knows everyone, so if there's anything that's even slightly out of the unusual, everybody descends to see kya ho raha <laughs> You know, I don't know which car, whose car is this? Who's this person? And so the whole village starts to gather because there's, as you can see, their lives may not have that, you know, that much entertainment going on. So any new site is often the one that draws huge crowds. Soon a short figure came into view in the doorway, Giri Bala. She was swathed in a cloth of dull goldish sink in typically Indian fashion, and she drew forward modestly and hesitatingly, peering slightly from beneath the upper fold of her Swadeshi cloth. So obviously she had a little bit of her parda just above her eyes. Her eyes glistened like smoldering embers in the shadow of her headpiece. We were enamored by a most benevolent and kindly face a face of realization and understanding, free from the taint of earthly attachment. Meekly she approached and silently ascended, assented to our snapping a number of pictures with our still and movie cameras. <laughs> Again, must have been a strange sight for her. Patiently and shyly, she endured our photo techniques of posture adjustment and light arrangements. Finally, we had recorded for posterity many photographs of the only woman in the world who is known to have lived without food or drink, there you go, for over 50 years. Teres Nueman, of course, has fasted since 1923. So Teres Nueman was a younger uh, woman, so she'd only gone perhaps a couple of decades or so. Uh, oh no, in this case, I guess 13 years, yeah, 14 13, years. Yeah. But Giribala, 50 years, five decades. I like this little moment that you can see that, you know, cameras at the time, you had to really sit still for a long period and, and that light would probably go up and then you'd make slight it because you have to see whether it came through or not. And it would have been such an interesting spectacle for this woman in her 70s, you know, unknown to the world. And suddenly this whole crew has descended and is making her sit this way and that way and look here Probably and look Probably she's thinking, this is why I don't want to go into the world. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well stay at my village. Yeah. I'm moving on to the next page. The little saint seated herself across, uh, seated herself cross-legged on the veranda. Though bearing the scars of age, she was not emaciated. Her olive-colored skin had remained clear and healthy in tone. Now, of course, if you think of somebody who's not eaten, you know, oh, malnourishment is not an unknown sight to us, especially here. And so when you see children or even adults who 
haven't eaten and don't have regular uh, food sources, you just see how they become complete bone and you can just kind of see their skin gets all wrinkly, rubbery. I mean, it's a, it's a known sight and it's easy to identify somebody and say, oh, wow, this person's not, you know. So obviously the first thing that Yoganandaji notices and realizes that, oh, you know, her body bears no sense that she's not being nourished. And that's again an, a nice important thing for us to tune into. Mother, I said in Bengali, for over 25 years, I have thought eagerly of this very pilgrimage. I heard about your sacred life from Stiti Lal Nandi Babu. She nodded in acknowledgement. Ah yes, my good neighbor in Nawab Ganj. During those years, I have crossed the oceans, but I never forgot my early plan to see you someday. The sublime drama that you are here playing so inconspicuously should be blazoned before a world that has long forgotten the inner food divine. The saint lifted her eyes for a minute, smiling with serene interest. Baba, which is honored father, knows best, she answered meekly. I was happy that she had taken no offense. One never knows how great yogis or yoginis will react to the thought of publicity. They shun it as a rule, wishing to pursue in silence the profound soul research. An inner sanction comes to them when the proper time arrives to display their lives openly for the benefit of seeking minds. When I read this, it, I was just struck by the thought that there must be so many such saints, and if not a saint, if not somebody who is completely free, but yogis and yoginis like Giribala, of course, she may not have you know, completely merged her consciousness into God, but she certainly found such a huge level of freedom. You know, food, I mean, you know, I'm one to speak. Food's like essential to my reality. You know, it's like, and how much time and energy and effort revolves around food. We, and mood. Huh? And the mood. And the mood. <laughs> <laughs> Narayani knows my moods around food. Like, well, they're ooh, up as we're approaching hungry. lunchtime and they start to go down. No. It's not that bad. You know, it, it's an evolving mood, let's just put it that way. But, it, you know, we, it's, it's not just that we then spend time consuming food. We think so much about it. We have to plan for it. You're, you're finishing one meal and you're in the houses, you're already planning the next meal and you're already thinking what's the... You know, I mean, uh, and conversations around it. Conversations <laughs> like around food. Of conversations <laughs> around food. <laughs> so we can see it's a it's a major. It's both an energy giver, but it's also an energy drainer mm -hmm. because it consumes so much of our energy just to <laughs> contemplate it. And so, of course, this woman's like done with that. And as we'll see a little later, all the things that are a byproduct of consuming food, which um, Yogananda mentions briefly towards the end. So, but it's nice to know that perhaps there are so many such people all around. And it's nice to feel that they're just going about their lives, you know, inwardly living whatever their reality is, but just expressing themselves comfortably and joyfully. And very few of them, in fact, receive that sanction that says, you know, okay, let's make this public. Oh, let's go. Let's tell somebody about it. You may not even know. Even in uh, that story of Mirabai, I don't know if you've ever heard this story where, you know, Mirabai is this great lover of Krishna and, of course, this amazing devotee, Bhakti Yogi. And, you know, she always had this thing where her husband didn't seem to kind of have the same... I mean, outwardly, he had no relationship. And so she always had this inner struggle, this inner hurt that, why is my husband also not a lover of God? Like, so one day, you know, she kind of finally says, all right, I'm going to like force him almost. I'm going to like, uh, you know, bring forth this subject with him. And the husband finally, as it turns out, reveals to her that, you know, he's, he's a very deep lover of God, but it's such a personal practice for him that he took a vow that if he ever revealed to anybody his deep love for God, he leave his body. 
And you know, in that moment, Mirabai Sadi says, no, no, don't. And he ended up leaving his body because he revealed that. And so, you know, there are such people out there, <laughs> I imagine. But isn't it wonderful just to contemplate? And it's wonderful to contemplate that they could be all around us and they could be the person in, you know, in the office. They could be you know, my next door neighbor. They could be anybody, you know, these lovers of God in different forms, doing different versions of expressing different versions of their love. And none of us need to know. And it's a nice aspect for us also. While it's a, you know, on one hand, we always say, you know, we're disciples of Paramahansa Yogananda and we're so proud of it and we want, you know, I mean, we're not like beating drums around, but if ever the opportunity comes, it's a great joy for us to be able to say that. But the more inner aspects of that love, somehow it's, it's, it's nice and sweet to keep it a little more sacred, a little bit more inward. And, and in fact, listen for that divine sanction when it feels appropriate to share. Mother, please forgive me then for burdening you with many questions. Kindly answer only those that please you. I shall understand your silence also. She spread her hands in a gracious gesture. I am glad to reply in so far as any, as an insignificant person like myself can give satisfactory answers. Oh no, not insignificant, I protested sincerely. You are a great soul. I am the humble servant of all, she added quaintly. I love to cook and feed people. A strange pastime, I thought, for a non-eating saint. <laughs> I wonder how she tasted ki khana achha ki But I guess she has a more divine power to tell, yes, this food looks good. Tell me, mother, from your own lips, do you live without food? That is true. She was silent for a few minute, moments, and her next remark showed that she had been struggling with mental arithmetic. <laughs> she was trying to count in her mind. From the age of 12 years, four months, down to my present age of 68, a period of 56 years, I have not eaten food or taken liquids. Wow. She was 12 years, four months at that time. Are you never tempted to eat? If I felt a craving for food, I would have to eat. Simply yet regally, she stated this axiomatic truth, one known too well by a world revolving around three meals a day. Again, such a beautiful, very simple, not, no, I've overcome this or I don't feel the need anymore. She just said, if I felt a craving for food, I would have to eat. You know, it's not that I'm not holding myself. I'm not, I'm not making this big show of, oh, I'm, I can't eat. If there ever was, it's just like that very craving itself has completely gone. But you do eat something. My tone held a note of remonstrance. Of course, she smiled in swift understanding. Your nourishment derives from the finer energies of air and sunlight and from the cosmic power which recharges your body through the medulla oblongata. Baba knows. Again, she acquiesced, her manner soothing and unemphatic. Again, just like, you know exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, why are you asking me these questions? But it's beautiful to see, here she is, and, uh, you know, in assuming, I'm assuming she's illiterate. I mean, you know, we're talking about the 1930s, a uh, woman in a very remote village. So maybe she's not tuned in particularly to a large education. Um, normally, when we think of, you know, oh, I've received this grace, I, we don't tune into how that grace came about. You know, we just know Yehuwah. So she could easily say, I don't think I eat anything. I just, you know, I'm just living. I just got this grace and now I don't have to eat anything. But of course, she knew exactly what she was doing. You know, she knew that she was receiving these finer energies. She knew that she was recharging her body through the medulla oblongata, which is what we try to do through with the energization exercises, not as successfully as her. But, you know, it, it's not that she's just oblivious to the fact. She's very aware. And in fact, later on, as we see, she employs certain yogic practices 
to keep this energy going. It's not that she's just, you know, some miracle occurred in her life and she has, she's just unaware of that miracle. And from now on, my life just is this way. She's very conscious about this fact. Mother, please tell me about your early life. It holds a deep interest for all of India and even for our brothers and sisters beyond the seas. Giri Bala put aside her habitual reserve, relaxing into a conversational mood. So be it. Her voice was low and firm. I was born in these forest regions. My childhood was unremarkable, save that I was possessed by an insatiable appetite. I had been betrothed in early years. So her childhood, like mine, <laughs> You know, one of her, she's like, the only thing that was remarkable about my childhood was I was always hungry. <laughs> you know, I had an insatiable appetite. I'm, I always wanted to eat. So that's an interesting, uh, you know, kind of, this is the only quality that she can remember. Otherwise, it's a very unremarkable childhood. But I was always hungry. Child, my mother often warned me. Try to control your greed. When the time comes for you to live among strangers in your husband's family, what will they think? What will they think of you if your days are spent in nothing but eating? Okay, a little different from me. <laughs> but, you know, imagine that. A little child constantly, constantly, constantly looking for things to eat. I don't know if she was a large child or not. She doesn't yeah, I think more. I mean, I feel like more than the act of eating, I think people in her family perceived, you know, the greed behind that. And sometimes where that's that's really what we are trying to identify behind the actions we feel they need to be changed, not necessarily the act itself of indulging into something, but what's the motivation behind it. What's the level of greed? What's the level of competition? What's the level of jealousy? What's the level of laziness? I don't know. I mean, there are so many, but, but the energy behind it, that as a child, you could see would take her way off from you know, a, a personality or a human being that would affect her, her life in the future, her relationships, her you know, the house she was going to live in. So I, I like this, you know, like try to control your greed, like hinting. It's just not eating. It's just how you approach food, how you approach to that particular um, aspect of your life. The calamity she had foreseen came to pass. I was only 12 when I joined my husband's people in Nawab Ganj. And my mother-in-law shamed me morning, noon, and night about my gluttonous habits. Her scoldings were a blessing in disguise. They roused my dormant spiritual tendencies. One morning, her ridicule was merciless. I shall soon prove to you, I said, stung to the quick, that I shall never touch food again as long as I live. My mother-in-law laughed in derision. So, she said, how can you live without eating when you cannot live without overeating? This remark was unanswerable. Yet, my iron resolution scaffolded my spirit. In a secluded spot, I sought my heavenly father. Lord, I prayed incessantly, please send me a guru. One who can teach me to live by thy light and not by food. Imagine this, a 12-year-old girl, mm -hmm. you know, such a beautiful instant. Yeah. And she knew where to, ask. where to draw from, mm -hmm. you know, wasn't like, okay, I'm going to now start to Homeopathy. apply myself. Oh, yeah, <laughs> let me go doctor. get some tonics and some, <laughs> you know, things that will help me. A divine ecstasy fell over me. Led by a beatific spell, I set out for the Nawab Ganj Ghat on the Ganges. On the way, I encountered the priest of my husband's family. Venerable sir, I said trustingly, 
kindly tell me how to live without eating? He stared at me without reply. Finally, he spoke in a consoling manner. Child, he said, come to the temple this evening. I will conduct a special Vedic ceremony for you. This vague answer was not the one I was seeking. I continued toward the ghat. Another beautiful, you know, she just she realized, no, it's not, nobody else is going to do this. It's not going to be a ritual. It's not going to be somebody doing some mantras for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking for something else. This wasn't it. The morning sun pierced the waters. I purified myself in the Ganges, as though for a sacred initiation. As I left the river bank, my wet cloth around me, in the broad glare of day, my master materialized himself before me. Dear little one, he said in a voice of loving compassion, I am the guru sent here by God to fulfill your urgent prayer. He was deeply touched by its very unusual nature. From today, you shall live by the astral light, your bodily atoms fed from the infinite current. That's sweet. I like that, him saying, you know, God was deeply touched by its very unusual <laughs> nature. And he, God had to immediately tune in and say, oh, I need to. This is unique. <laughs> and then, you know, he sends this, uh, what, I don't know where this yogi was, this guru was, maybe in his meditation, he's receiving some information and some, you know, um, instructions from God. And now he has to materialize in front of this lady. Such a beautiful little, you know, play of the divine. Of course, not one that each of us get to experience very often. But it's nice to know that some people do experience this and some people have that power to magnetize these experiences. And that becomes, you know, it's like, wow, I, I want to develop that same magnetism as well. Giribala fell into silence. The saint resumed the tale, her gentle voice barely audible. The ghat was deserted, but my guru cast around us an aura of guarding light that no stray bathers later disturb us. He initiated me into a Kriya technique, which frees the body from dependence on the gross foods of mortals. The technique includes the use of a certain mantra and a breathing exercise more difficult than the average person could perform. No medicine or magic is involved, nothing beyond the Kriya. So here it is, you know, he's, she's been given a technique, a very specific practice. And as she says, practice includes a mantra, it includes a certain breathing technique. We have practices that have certain mantra. Also, we have practices that have a certain breathing technique. That's not the usual technique that people use. So whether, of course, probably not the same, but also suggesting that huh, we also can use what we've been given for so much more than perhaps we apply in our lives. In the manner of the American newspaper reporter who had unknowingly taught me this procedure, I questioned Giribala on many matters which I thought would be in of interest to the world. <clears throat> she gave me bit by bit the following information. I have never had any children. Many years ago, I became a widow. So now she lives by herself. I sleep very little, as sleep and waking are the same to me. I meditate at night, attending to my domestic duties in the daytime. I have never been sick or experienced any disease. I feel only slight pain when accidentally injured. I have no bodily excretions. I can control my heart and breathing. And I often see my guru as well as other great souls in vision. So from that one thing, which is just freedom from eating, has also come to her a lot of other freedoms. And that's an interesting thing, the correlation between when we break a bondage with one aspect of this world, there are a lot of other repercussions here. I mean, you know, we don't realize it, but it's because we eat that we excrete. What goes in has to come out in some form or the other. So that's gone. 
um, because you know we eat, we expend energy, we, we feel that our energy is limited and we're like, now we have to eat again. Of course, then we feel we have to rest a lot. And so we sleep a lot more than perhaps we may need. And so now she doesn't need that as well. At the same time, she's never been sick and never experienced disease, which is another interesting thing. <laughs> to a certain degree, we can almost think of that yeah. <laughs> having to depend on this external source for our energy requires the body to deteriorate, to go into disharmony. Because of course, we're also not conscious of what we're putting into our bodies most of the times. So there's just so many subtle realities to it. Just by breaking, overcoming one habit, one very, of course, a very strong bondage. This is not something small that she did, but it had such a kind of a powerful and all-embracing effect in her lives. And then, of course, she says, I can control my heart, my breathing, means she can go breathless whenever she wants. She can stop the heart if she feels the need to enter into those states of deeper samadhis. And she can see her guru as well as other saints in visions. So you're just seeing that this uh, domino effect almost of trying to just, you know, just you be perfect one thing. That's when we talk about the yamas, niyamas, or we talk about any aspect on the spiritual path. You say perfecting one really requires perfecting all. But we use the one as the focal point. All right, let me, let me do this. And for her, this wasn't her intention wasn't, I want to seek saints. She wasn't saying, I want to be not sleep. She, she had nothing of that. She, poor little girl, she was 12 years old. All she really wanted was that her mother-in-law, you know, not kind of deride her all the time. She, you know, and then she realized that, of course, she realized that she had an issue and she wanted to do something about it. But it's such a sweet little, ex, you know, an explanation of it doesn't have to be these big, sometimes, in fact, the hard parts in our life, things that really hurt us, affect us, trigger us, they become the greatest impetus for change in our life. Suddenly we're like, you know what, this is it, I've had it, can't take it anymore. I'm going to do it now. And then we decide we're going to make that change. And that's what happened in her life as well. I, somehow, I don't know if, if you are able to, but almost through her words, you can feel also her consciousness. You know, like so, so humble, like a, a matter of fact. This is what happens, not a big deal. These are the main, even physical aspects of the body for those who are scientifically oriented, what they would like to know in the West. And if you see, she selects a few things to share with Yogananda that can be very appealing for Westerners. But, but then, of course, the last line, I often see my guru and as others in, in visions. But, but you see like how after 25 years, 50, 50 years, like so comfortable, and so unassuming of the miracle that she has received and, and the mission of her life, which we will read right now. But how, how the simplicity and the humility when you see a miracle in your life and, and, and just embrace it so beautifully, you don't go about it. And what you share is in a very humble way, you know, Many times we have discussed this. We see a little something in meditation, a little <laughs> miracle happens, and we just like to share it, like broadcast. <laughs> like broadcast it and talk about it, you know, and just tell to the world. And we even add things to that little <laughs> miracle that hasn't, they have not really happened, but they just add a spark to the story. But, but you see here how briefly she shares a few points and uh, she's perfectly you know comfortable and humble I, I just like what's coming through her consciousness in this chapter and I can also visualize the three of them just sitting in the middle of nowhere exchanging these amazing uh, laws and, and the potential of the soul how we can live in this world you know without depending of 
something as basic as, as food. It's a nice little moment yeah. between them. In the Patanjali reading we were doing on Thursday, if you remember, Patanjali talks about if you, uh, you know, have samyam or contemplate or absorb yourself at the pit of the throat, then you will overcome all hunger and thirst. So I wonder if there is a little hint of that Probably, in her practice. Yeah. Mother, I asked, why don't you teach others the method of living without food? My ambitious hopes for the world's starving millions were nipped in the bud. Yoganandaji Ji is thinking, okay, there are a lot of people who are starving in the world. If we could just teach them this, <laughs> this yogic technique, that's it. Nobody has to suffer again, ever again. No, she shook her head. I was strictly commanded by my guru not to divulge the secret. It is not his wish to tamper with God's drama of creation. The farmers would not thank me if I taught many people to live without eating. The luscious fruits would lie uselessly on the ground. It appears that misery, starvation and disease are whips of our karma, which ultimately drive us to seek the true meaning of life. Again, so, I mean, this is, you know, that higher form of wisdom. Not like, oh yeah, wouldn't it be lovely if you, we could just, everybody could just learn these things and like, no, misery is needed. <laughs> Starvation is needed. You know, disease is needed. And then of course she's saying, what about the farmers? What about the fruits? What about all these trees? What about nature herself? She's come together to, to give to her children. What will happen to her? And just such a beautiful, but you see such an impersonal thing because from our side it's like, why not? Isn't this amazing? You know, we should be, we should bottle this technique up and be selling it like Coca-Cola. You know, it's just like, let everybody have these things. But that's not the play of Maya, is it? It's not the whole point of this, these incarnations that we're going through. And even Giribala, you know, this is just one of her incarnations. Who knows if she decides to carry on the Siddhi in, into her next or what her next... Uh, particular mission is going to be, what she's going to have to live through and experience after that. And um, it's somehow just lovely she, to see. Yeah. Somehow she reminds me, I don't know if for you as well, but the similar role of Lahiri Mahashaya, mm. that she was given with a particular consciousness, a particular mission, a particular role that had nothing to do with the public you know, was his disciples, now for Giribala, Yogananda was almost the one who brought this to the world because I don't think she was particularly interested in bringing this miracle or God-given, you know, mission. So just like being where you are and, and, and allowing God to do the rest. You know, you, you have been given that mission, that miracle, that realization. And those who need to know about this and do something with it, God will send them. You know, having the, the assurance that everything is in place. And, and Lahiri Mahashaya was pretty much the same. He was at home and he will only have disciples come into that living room to meditate with him, trying to understand, you know, what he was trying to say. He didn't write any book. His disciples spread almost the message of Kriya Yoga through him, but he really wasn't actively involved. And I think Giribala had a, a similar role. You know, she was just there. She was like the, the, the living proof that men, as Jesus said, don't live by bread alone. And I think one of the reasons that Master Yogananda was deeply interested to meet her was because she was representing, in a sense, the energization exercises and what they can do for us when we learn to live by energy, by prana, by light. And, and I think almost he must have felt that this is what the energization exercise uh, do 
for my disciples, and this is like a, a proof of its practice, I guess. Yeah, what it looked like finally. Yes. Also, from an interesting perspective, it is for us because, you know, we don't have any miraculous reality. I, I don't think so, at least we don't here. Um, but we all have skills and talents and karmas that we've brought forth and and it'll be helpful to I like this idea of listening for divine sanction what to share, what not to share just because I have something doesn't mean it's, you know, oh, I have this talent this has to be I ha it's, my, it's my duty for this talent for everybody to really, you know enjoy it or understand it or see it being spread and it's a subtle thought, isn't it, of what what God wants from each of us. She had the most amazing, the most powerful, you know, Siddhi technique available to her. And yet she knew very, very consciously with all certainty, this is not something that I have divine sanction to share. And that's it, you know, not even, not even, eh, let me at least tell my cousin, sister, you know, because she might, eh, let me at least oh, just relax in that fact. So much trust and so much faith in, in God's drama, really, to recognize that all this is needed. <laughs> and I'm just have, you know, I do what, what's needed of me, what's asked of me. And it seems even her family, you know, when they met Yogananda, they, you, you don't feel in them they are trying to, you know, make a big buzz. Oh, yeah, yeah, you have to meet her. Oh, my God, you should. <laughs> she's yeah, amazing. She's amazing. No, you can see that everyone in the family has the same approach <clears throat> to what she was channeling. You know, no one was making a big fuss about, about that. I'm sure at the beginning when she received the miracle, I mean, the first few years must have, must have been a little bit hard for her closest members, you know, like, why is she not eating, but you are going to get sick, you know, I mean, she felt this is something God is giving me, but what about my mother, my mother-in-law? You know, they, they must have been concerned, like, if you don't eat, if you don't drink. So, but after years of that, you know, everyone in the family, you know, accepted, recognized that was a miracle, honored that, you know, respected that, but, but no one made, like, big announcements at villagers and I wonder what her mother and like what would have happened well, it doesn't say you know like then what did your mother-in-law think after you stopped eating altogether <laughs> I mean, the mother-in-law must now be so anything this late girl says she's going to do so let me just <clears throat> must have been a very interesting exchange between them afterwards mother I said slowly what is the use of your having been singled out to live to live without eating? So, you know, after Yoganandaji is saying, okay, you don't want to share this, but then what's the point? Why have you been singled out to prove this particular point, to show this uh, particular aspect? And she says, to prove that man is spirit. Her face lit with wisdom. To demonstrate that by divine advancement, he can gradually learn to live by the eternal light and not by food. And that's a beautiful answer, isn't it? That he can gradually learn. That I am here to show the potential, as Narayani said. This is possible. But now you're going to have to, you know, earn this. You're going to have to advance towards this. This isn't going to just drop in your lap, even though it dropped into hers. But of course... I'm sure she must have done something amazing for many lifetimes. I mean, she must, I mean, at a 12-year-old girl already saying, God, I want to live by your light, immediately having the power to materialize a guru, boom, in front of her, he giving her her diksha and probably then dematerializing and that's it. All that happening within the space of just that one prayer, that one day. Um, that's a powerful prayer. Yogananda says here she was the first woman no, in the world with, uh, to live without food, like mm, the first one. For 56 years. Yeah. Yeah, quite remarkable. The saint sank into a deep meditative state. Her gaze was directed inward. The gentle depths of her eyes became expressionless. She gave a certain sigh. 
the prelude to the ecstatic, breathless trance. For a time she had fled to the questionless realm, the heaven of inner joy. <laughs> no one's asking her questions there. <clears throat> the tropical darkness had fallen and the light of a small kerosene lamp flickered fitfully over the faces of a score of villagers squatting silently in the shadows. So we haven't realized this, but while this is happening inside the house, the whole village is sitting there listening and you can see the shadows of their faces with the little lamp that's lit. That's such a sweet experience, isn't it? Everybody's just there, everybody's listening uh, to what she's saying. Maybe many of them are hearing this even for the first time. Even many of them may not know. The darting glowworms and distant oil lanterns of the huts wove bright, eerie patterns in the velvet into the velvet night. It was the painful hour of parting. A slow, tedious journey lay before our little party. Giribala, I said as the saint opened her eyes, please give me a keepsake, a strip of one of your saris. She soon returned with a piece of Banaras silk extending it in her hand as she suddenly prostrated herself on the ground. Mother, I said reverentially, rather let me touch your blessed feet. And that ends our chapter 46, The Woman Yogi Who Never Eats. It's lovely, every chapter introducing us to such different um, potentials really. Mm -hmm. You had Ananda Moima, the blissful, she's in her own complete space of, you know, constant bliss, hardly relating to, hardly even fully connecting with the world around her. We had Gandhi before that and, you know, his very principled, very outward mission, a mission that involved a billion people, you know, like taking everybody along with him in whatever possibility that he could. And then all the saints that we've gone sleepless through. Saint. The sleepless, the levitating, the tiger swami, the saint with two bodies. I mean, we've just got like, wow, you know, you can pick it up from so many different ways. Yet there's that underlining, you know, consciousness behind all of them that says none of this matters, what I'm doing. Even the tiger swami, after everything was done, he says, I have realized that there are the wild beasts that I need to fight are within me. They are the ones that I read. These guys I can defeat more easily than the ones that are inside me, roaming in the jungles of my consciousness. And that really is that, this is what this book really is trying to show us. It's showing us an external potential for, you know, to almost as a, as a surety, a certainty to, to say, look, this isn't just make-believe. This isn't just, oh, it's all inside you. These are people who've not just awakened these energies inside, but look what they've been able to do with it. But then at the same time saying, yet none of that matters. And even Girivala in the end says, none of this matters. All I'm here to is prove that man is spirit and that he too, slowly, gradually, advancingly, may get to such a space. Yeah, and the, I mean, you can also see an underlying current in all these saints. I mean, the way they pray to receive that miracle, that's what magnetizes that life-changing experience where suddenly, you know, your love for God is deeper, your humility increases, then knowing that has nothing to do with you, but with who God is and what he can do through you. I mean, but, but basically how each one of these saints pray for it, pray for a change in their lives. They just like shake. I mean, they pray so magnetically that God has no choice but show up and touch them and make that miracle because they really wanted a change. And I think if nothing else, to me, what each one of these saints expressing God's consciousness in unique ways is like they were desperately 
for having an interaction with God in one way or another. They needed that help. They wanted that presence in their lives. And, and that's something to tune as well when we pray, when, when we want to know even one of these, you know, gurus or any saint. I mean, what was the prayer that took them there? Because each one of them was the way they prayed. That that turning point happened. And maybe for each one of us, that could be something nice to tune into. What do I want to pray for? What do I want to attract in my life? What's the real permanent change I want to have? And once I know how I'm going to pray for it, how am I going to magnetize that miracle? And that's the beauty of every saying, like it's up to us. The intensity of our prayer. So today that's something that I took with me, like wow, all, all, all of them, there was that moment on their journey, which was the way they prayed. And that moment or soon after, that very day, boom, you attract your guru, you receive a technique, everything just changes. And that's it. And the journey speeds up, and then God does the rest. You don't have to do anything else. Everything unfolds in front of you. And that's, that's another kind of thought that today struck me like, hmm. I need to approach my way of praying differently. Uh, yes, on a daily basis, but I need to identify what do I really want to change in my life? What am I ready for transform in my life? And yeah, maybe now coming up to Guru Purnima could be a good time yeah. to have you know, a little bit of an introspection about that.